Ayana Dozier is a scholar, filmmaker, and performance artist living in Brooklyn, New York. She was a 2018-2019 to Helena Rubinstein Fellow in Critical Studies at the Whitney Independent Studies Program, and her dissertation, Mnemonic Aberrations, traces the history of Black feminist experimental short film in the U.S. and the U.K. from 1968 to present. She's also the author of Jenna Jackson's The Velvet Rope, a recent book in our 33 and a third series, which we discuss in this episode as a part of our mini-cast on politics. Our conversation centers Jenna Jackson's music and career, while tackling issues such as bodily autonomy, sexuality, Black history, cyberculture, and more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking with Ayana Dozier, the author of Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope, which is a part of our 33 and a third series. Thank you so much for being on the show, Ayana. Looking forward to speaking about arguably one of the most important pop icons of the 20th century. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Just to get started, what motivated you to write this book? Like, what was your thought process when it first came to be? Came to be at various stages of my life. I've mentioned in the book and I mentioned even elsewhere, this is something that this album has formed a lot of how I approach decision making for my life. And I think when I was perhaps around 14, 15, when I started doing theater, when I started finding more uh, expressive ways to talk about things and how things mean to me and what they mean to me, I kept coming back to the velvet rope. That's when I realized, oh, I'm wearing people down. I'm always advocating for this album and I'm always kind of talking about its somatic content, et cetera, et cetera. So certainly by my early 20s, I knew I needed to devote some type of full study to it that allowed me to, one, stop weighing my friends down in conversations about it, but then also that gave me the opportunity to really unpack what this album meant to me thematically, what I was receiving out of it, and then also what shared types of connections other individuals across Black diaspora communities and across queer communities as well were also uh, latching onto within this album. So by the time I found out about the 33 and the third series, which was earlier on in my 20s as well, I had made up my mind that this was going to happen. Like I'm going to write a 33 and a third on Janet Jackson. I just need to know a, a kind of matter of when. And that win came about a few years ago. Why the Velvet Rope as opposed to some of her other albums? Right. Because on the surface, you might think, Rhythm Nation, you know, it's one of her best-selling albums. It's still widely beloved. It's a great album. Or even Janet, her sectional awakening, one of the most iconic album covers ever. But The Velvet Rope is something that is not only expertly crafted as a work of art, but it's something that still is misunderstood. While if you look at the Wikipedia page, there's a lot of adoration for the album now, 20 years later, at the time she was written off as manufacturing pain. The metaphors were misunderstood. She was demonized for just how far she pushed sex over. And the particular singles didn't sell as well as her previous albums did. So it was almost the low point of her career. You know, I think, mind you, the album still sold 8 million copies, but it was the low point of Janet's career. And she was able to quote unquote, bounce back with all for you. And I, feel that that 
distinction, that kind of qualifying account that this is a low point. When a Black woman kind of opens up, starts to probe within her interiority, thinking about past abuse, including domestic abuse, as she talks about on What About and the album, her sexual fantasies, depression, body dysmorphia. That's not only in line crossed too far, but that this idea that no one wants to hear that. There's not an audience for that. And I think part of that resistance to what she was documenting on the Velvet Rope is that sense that Janet had always been so happy. She had a beautiful smile. She still has a beautiful smile. And it almost participates in this, not just classical massage noir as defined by, you know, Trudy in the sense of the type of racialized sexism that Black women face, but it also participates in that historic construction of Black individuals in the United States of, if you're not entertaining us, we don't want to hear it. And I felt that returning to that moment in her life, which is still her darkest album, or at least thematically, it's her album where she really uncovers a lot of her sense of past experiences, to look at that with not only my perspective, but to at least bring in a larger audience to engage with what that interiority could be without needing to expect a happy ending or expect a sense of being entertained, at least on the level of joy and happiness is really critical because we afford that to so many other individuals. We afford that to so many other racialized groups all the time and so many different gender groups, specifically with men, they get to have a deep, dark interiority without needing to entertain us at the end of the day. So why don't we shift that perspective and give that same platform to Black women's interiority? Right. And that misogynoir power structure still shapes our popular culture today. I mean, in in terms of mainstream consumption, Black feminine interiority that is dark or painful is quote-unquote unpleasant. And and therefore unprofitable because perhaps because it forces people to contend with the oppressive systems that create some of that pain in the first place. And I mean, thinking about centering Black women's interiority, how has reflecting upon Janet's work informed your ideas about what it means to be in control of one's own body as a Black woman? I think, and she might disagree, but I think, think what actually Janet makes available for us in her entire media archive is how persistent you have to be as a Black woman to maintain some sense of autonomy over your body. Because I don't even think that she, she might now have it. And this is not a critique or anything, but I think this is just listening to her interviews. And so she just gave birth a few years ago now, but she left a really abusive marriage. She admitted that. And that was still happening, right? In her late 40s, early 50s, that she's still fighting, that she didn't crack the code. And then, you know, she turned 31, made this album. And then suddenly from there on out, it's been smooth sailing. It's like, no, what Janet's media archive demonstrate is that growing up from a young age, and she talks about this in her memoir-esque book, True You, she mentions as young as 14, she understood that she was going to have to like battle her mother's ideology about what her body should do and what her body should be and what her father wanted from her. And that's not everyone grows up in that environment, right? Where you have to immediately understand that in order for you to have any sense of agency, you have to have all of the self-esteem, all of the power, 
all of the strength that comes from outside of you, right? Because you're not necessarily going to ornately have that within you. And I think what her career demonstrates to me, even if it seems a bit bleak that, you know, she's still in her fifties and she's still fighting for that sense of autonomy. It just affirms my own struggle and my own ongoing road to possessing autonomy over my body, that it will be a struggle. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no room for joy within that struggle. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's no room for pleasure, right? And I think, again, the velvet rope makes room for that. So against this tapestry of self-doubt, of low self-esteem, of trauma, of physical violence, there is also masturbation. There is also BDSM for fun, right? There is also her experimenting with her sexuality. And the insistence that she had as a creator to hold on to that, that while she's doing this deep interior work of examining her psyche, that she's also saying, I'm still going to put some fun in this as well. Like I'm still going to house this within that because maintaining this body that is already positioned, and I have to use a little bit of theory here to help me out, but what Horton Spillers is a formidable Black feminist scholar writes as for Black women, historically, our bodies exist with a split of the body, the flesh, right? That the type of inhumane conditions that emerged during enslavement of chattel slavery, institutional rape, of just the complete degradation of the body as a concept, as a thing that has agency and something that can be held together, were completely destroyed through those conditions. And specifically for Black women, they felt that a bit more acutely because they were also being worked as chattel while also for some cis Black women possessing the ability to reproduce. With that being said, the body then breaks apart. It becomes known as the flesh. So the flesh for Black women is often what we're born into. We don't have control over ourselves. Society tells us that our bodies are not for us and that the only way to gain proximation to possessing a body is to adapt modes of patriarchal constructions of what we should be doing in our life. And that was certainly the home environment that Janet grew up in, right? And to push back against that is where you not only start to define what your body is and how you can maintain autonomy over that body, but it becomes the struggle that defines your life existence because do you hold on to continuing to fight for your autonomy or do you just give up at some point and then accept this distinction of just being flesh for other people's pleasure? So with that, while I started off with a bit of I wouldn't say complete bleakness in that I look at Janet and I see that she's still struggling and fighting for autonomy. I actually think that there's something very aspirational about that. I hope, you know, one, to have a future, but I hope to live to be in my mid-50s and to still be fighting and to not give up on that struggle and to persevere throughout it. And again, there is room for joy within that, but it is a struggle. And that's what I understand my own sense of autonomy as a Black woman in the world. It seems like joy is such an important part of the equation in in any social justice movement, because without it, what can sustain your energy? Fighting a system that's oppressiveness is intentionally exhausting. And, And on that thought, thinking about Janet's work, I mean, is it possible to confront the pain and alienation that comes from being forced to conform to patriarchal and racist standards? and come out with something that feels emancipatory? I don't know if there's a clear response to that that allows us to walk away with something coherent. I think I'm still sorting that out. What I can say, though, 
And again, looking at not just Janet, but other media examples and or other types of discourse, theory, literature, etc., is the insistency of refusing that alienation that has been thrust upon Black womanhood in society. Because part of struggling, part of perseverance and fighting for one's autonomy is that you become alienated. Because so many other individuals, Black women included, right? I don't think Black women are a monolithic group who all have the same experiences and or who possess the same desire for emancipation. And saying that then, some individuals at some point make different decisions where maybe fighting just isn't, maybe they're worn down, right? Maybe they just want to have the same type of comfort that everyone else has. And the only thing they have to sacrifice is their pursuit of freedom, their pursuit of emancipation, their pursuit of actual bodily autonomy. And for some individuals, that is something that they're willing to part with because it gives them access to communities. It gives them access to a sense of care or it serves their ego in that respect. And what I mean by that is that while even those constructions of community are falsely organized because they're all organized with the consent that Black women don't have agency. It still feels good to be included. A lot of people want to be included. That was the whole point of high school, you know, it's teaching you to follow popularity because you just want to be included. And when you push back against some of those dominant structures that inform what we think about Black women in society, right, coming from enslavement, that that has fed, informed rather, every aspect of our lived experience that has informed legal laws today, that has informed how institutions work, that has informed how certain literature is written, which literature becomes popular, et cetera. That is just part of our lived experience still in 2020. And saying that then when you fight back against that, you are alienated. And I think how do we maintain emancipation is to not only maintain the struggle, but then to say, I'm not going to be alienated in this. Like, I'm not going to be cast out. I'm going to continue then to also make room to not only reach out and find others who are also in the struggle, but to also find a sense of collectivity, of engagement with other people's problems, other people's struggles as well. And it's very difficult, but I think that's what keeps me going, is to not only understand that I am being alienated, by those around me. And I don't mean interpersonally per se, but I mean just larger institutions, but to resist that. And it becomes almost a radical kind of imaginative existence where I feel sometimes I'm just quite out there because I look at the social reality I live in and I just have to wake up each day and say, nope. (laughs) it, And then I don't for that day. And that's what it looks like each day, just refusing that social reality. Which is utterly exhausting in itself. But yeah, I mean, with the velvet rope, you hear that radical refusal of alienation throughout the album. And one of the ways that that was practiced, as you've already mentioned, was was Janet's insistence on expressing her sexuality in a way that produced huge controversies at the time. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how Janet Jackson challenged racist heteronormative conceptions of sexuality in her music? Yeah, I often always push back against the sense of our sense of linear time that we've gotten better as time has moved on. And that's not necessarily true. I do think there's a broader vocabulary available for us to like talk about heteronormativity that wasn't available to the public back then. But looking at our political state of affairs, clearly like there still is a bind around transgressive sexualities. So in saying that, what I am drawn to on the Velvet Rope is the 
performance of inserting herself as part of that community. What we often hear still to this day, and what was often popular around that time for popular artists, musicians to do, is to just suggest allyship, right? Of like, I support what this person is doing with their body. Like that sense of, I'm going to use myself to uplift a different community, right? And that's fine. What makes it risky is when you insert yourself as saying, I could also be interested in this, or I'm also part of this network of alternative approaches to sexuality that do not center uh, masculine desire and that do not center masculine pleasure. And that is what pushed her over the edge. And this is also something that was a case study, you know, with Madonna, with erotica. It wasn't that Madonna was sexy. She had been sexy for her entire career. It was the whole point. The thing that went over the edge for Madonna, which she faced a similar backlash, but different, is that she put herself as part of that network of alternative sexuality, literally via these images for the book, as well as lyrically. And Janet does a similar thing where you have Tonight's the Night. She maintains the pronouns for Rod Stewart's song to have her audience imagine that she too could be given some good love into a woman rather than just saying, I affirm and uplift what kind of queer culture is doing. With Rope Burn, you know, she talks about the desires and pleasures she gets through this very consensual form of uh, sexual activity and performance play. And when you put yourself as part of that kind of dialogue, you decenter men, you decenter particularly masculine desires as popularly constructed in society. So I'm not saying to decenter is like all men completely, but that type of male desire, male gaze that is trained to enjoy certain types of femininity that feel constructed for them. When you participate in these forms of alternative sexualities, it decenters that type of desire. And because the music industry still is largely informed by patriarchal ideology and is ran by a lot of very aggressive men, men often have a hard time with that. Well, yeah, I mean, you're totally right, though, that like things haven't changed that much because this immediately made me think about how people reacted to WAP. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people were freaking out. I'm shocked. And I'm shocked by the shockness of that song because one, Cardi B has already had so many songs. Like one, her first mixtape is like nasty, nasty. So it's like, it's not as if this is new to her archive, but she's also had plenty of songs that are very much in this vein. And she's been now popular in the mainstream for at least five years. But then also I'm just thinking of like, Little Kim, How Many Licks. That song is over 20 years old. Like, this is not new. <laughs> this is not new. There's so many alternative musicians saying things far more explicit and more visual imagery than WAP. And as much as I do enjoy that song, and I really do, and I very much appreciate Megan Thee Stallion's lyrics on that song, Cardi B has had better lyrics, right? It is very straightforward. And I think what the outreach to what demonstrates to us is not an outreach actually to explicit songs and or semi-explicit imagery around sex. Cardi B has, again, has had more explicit stuff. This is one of her, to be quite great, tamer examples or outings in her archive. And in saying that, what the outreach to it is an outrage for the point of 
having a very public example of how to demonize Black women's sexuality and this performance of that. And I think about, there were several conservative commentators who I'm not going to mention their names, purposely not to amplify their profiles, but they had their YouTube channels where they were talking about it and saying stuff. And it's like, on a day-to-day basis, I'm sure they're not bothered by Cardi B and maybe Stalin. Like, there's no way that they actually engage with that work, let alone, you know, someone like Janelle Monet or anyone who's actually has been doing that for quite longer. The point of that, though, is that it's part of a digital economy of traffic where you have this buzzworthy video, you have this buzzworthy song, you have these Buzzworthy artists, especially with Megan and Stalin having earned a number one hit earlier this year. And this song kind of elevated her profile even more. So it becomes a nice target for individuals to latch on to. And with that, it creates a kind of more easily shared document that you then can collectively kind of abbreviate on together. And that's purely because of the way in which, you know, social media works these days and just that almost the very kind of nitty gritty elements of digital media and digital media technology of being able to embed videos from YouTube on social media sites, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I think the, perhaps the over amplification of the outrage to WAP is purely because they recognize that they can get some visibility out of that. They can get some money out of that, right? Like the people having those reaction videos to it on YouTube, their videos are monetized. So they get clicks. And then, you know, MSNBC is like, oh, people are outraged by WAP. They get viewership because of that. Cardi B and Megan Thee Stalin continue to be talked about. And that's a different environment than when something like Dirty Computer drops, because Janelle Monet, as artistic as she is and as popular as she is, she doesn't have that type of digital media economy yet, right? Her stuff kind of can just be filtered in one area. So even if people were outraged by Janelle Monet, it becomes a sense of gain, you know, financial gain. Like if for them thinking to themselves, thinking like, if I'm going to react to this, is it actually going to get me anywhere? Are people going to notice? Probably not. So I think that's where WAP became just a target. From the moment they dropped the title and that amazing cover image for the single, individuals kind of perked up and realized, well, here's something that I can openly bash because it's going to serve in my favor. I mean, talking of visibility, does that like bring you back to the velvet rope at all? Because like, I'm thinking now about that tour poster that we <laughs> talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I remember... At that time, I wrote a blog on the tour poster because I didn't get to talk about the tour poster in the book. It was one of the things I had to cut. And when I was doing research for that, there was some part of my brain that was like, is this image like really wild or is it like too sexual? And I just remember my brain being like, you remember all of those Carl's Jr. commercials you used to watch as a kid, right? And not like that I would willingly watch. That would just happen at like 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Some Carl's Jr. commercial of a model eating a burger very suggestively with like sauce spilling all over her lip and like her top coming undone and officer looking at her. And I just remember like how much I hated those commercials because already as a child, I became really aware of like, Oh, is this the type of person I need to be? Like where's the agency in that? But also just how obviously erotic those imagery are, but also how normalized they are. And how that was just daytime television commercial, watching Saturday afternoon cartoons 
and then cut to a Carl's Jr. commercial. Remembering that made me mad all over again because that image is one that comes from an artist's sense of creative expression and for it to be completely condemned in that level, I think goes back to what I mentioned earlier about what it means to insert yourself within that engagement of alternative sexualities, which also includes not necessarily, when I say alternative sexualities, I'm not just talking about queer sexuality, but I'm actually just mentioning just that the idea that women, especially women who sleep with men, so women who may engage with heterosexual relationships, that the idea that they would get pleasure out of that is still something that goes against dominant arguments on what relationships should be, and what sexual relationships between heterosexual couples should look like. And what that image demonstrates, again, is someone who is presenting her image as an assertive woman and as a, an autonomous lover for herself, right? She centers herself first, and then anyone else who may also be interested can receive that benefit. And it's frustrating because it also, in a way, crosses the boundary of sex work to an extent, only insofar as the frustration that society largely has with women sex workers primarily is that they would benefit off of their own sexuality rather than, again, participate in this dominant structure that their sexuality is for male pleasure. And that's what that tour poster does, right? She's doing it for herself. Ergo, this can't be. This is not an image that is healthy. But again, at the same time, those Carl's Jr. commercials absolutely healthy for teaching women what type of sexuality is appreciative in this environment, so long as it centers men. Right. And and the way that they sustain themselves is is dependent on this hypersexualized patriarchal conception of feminine sexuality. And as you've said, Janet was condemned for doing the opposite, you know, centering her own sexuality, asserting bodily autonomy, and, and still making money in the process. So Janet was openly challenging respectability politics by reconfiguring Black women's sexuality in her music. But another thing that you've explored is this idea that The Velvet Rope is a technophilic album. Um, the Velvet Rope came out at the birth of the internet age. Do you feel that Janet embraced cyberspace as a part of her aesthetic? Barely. <laughs> it is a little, right? It's not as dominant when you look at other albums of that era, like I go back to Madonna a lot, but I think if there's anyone you can say has a, not a comparable career, but just formidable, right? It would also be someone like Madonna. But Ray of Light, which came out a few months after The Velvet Rope, was a good example of that kind of strong technophilic electronica bent. Bjork's Homeogenic, which came out around the same time, I think just a few weeks after The Velvet Rope, is another clear example of that. So with the Velvet Rope, it is minimal. However, though, what those other two examples, and I'm just speaking in broad strokes here in terms of doing this compare and contrast, what those other two examples demonstrate in their album and their imagery is this sense of technophilia of, you know, like, oh, we're going to enter the new millennia and it's just going to take over. We're going to be, it's almost like cyberpunk, right? Which was also visually very popular. It's just a year and a half away from like the matrix this is coming into that era of just technology will give us avatars and we can do whatever we want. And that was already happening with a lot of net art online starting around 94, 95, 96, 97. What Janet kind of 
looks at with questions of cyber culture is a bit of caution. And the song Empty, where we hear the dial-up modem and then the kind of narrative of the song talks about cyber sex, but it being very unfulfilling. Like there are moments where the words are so clearly written and they're just so beautifully written that it causes a physical reaction, but it's not, she doesn't know who this lover is. She can't see them. Like it's very much her awareness of the grip that digital technology can have over our bodies that one, we can respond physically to the lack of images that we can respond physically to just the idea of a virtual world without knowing who's who and what is real about it. But then that also that physical response can take over and dictate our self-esteem. It can dictate our self-worth and it can ultimately not be as fulfilling as we imagine it to be. In the book, I compare this song to aspects of social media because I feel like it predicts that to a certain extent where we have Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, for those who have it, is that sense of you do something and we're all driven by our egos. So when someone likes it, it's nice. It's a nice hit. It's a weird rush of like, oh, someone likes what I said. I, that's interesting. But when no one likes it, oh my goodness, suddenly we might have this moment where we're just like, well, am I not funny enough? Did I say the wrong thing? And then we need to step back. You're like, I don't know any of these people. Like, why do I care whether or not this is popular or not? But again, it's that sense that this environment has the power to be real to us. And again, in some of the other albums at that time, there's just a lot of optimism around that, a lot of optimism around like, oh, I can transcend my flesh. And I think again, because Janet's speaking from a critical perspective of the lack of autonomy over her body in real life, I think that she doesn't necessarily see the digital world as being more open to that or is more transgressive. I think she approaches it with a sense of trepidation because in what environment could actually give you the possibilities of freedom as a Black woman. And I know that with net art, there was a lot of intersections with queer culture and queer cyber cultures at the time. But even with the work in that moment, it was very critical. It was saying, you know, we have to kind of construct this even within this virtual space, we have to have our own communities because there's still a barrage of hate that we can encounter if we don't create our own economies around ourselves. So even that work was still very much aware of the tension of, yes, possibility that emerges with cyberculture, but then also acute awareness of moving things online doesn't necessarily absolve structures of oppression. Right. And and often we just reiterate the same structures of oppression online. I mean, when you think about how Google's algorithm discriminates against Black girls, for instance, you remember there are people with their own racist bias programming the AI systems that are supposed to be, you know, quote unquote, objective. But this optimistic idea of being able to transcend the flesh on social media, um, do you think this conversation is related at all to things like Afrofuturism? No. The reason why I say no is because I think there's a misconception about what Afrofuturism is. And so I want to re-examine Afrofuturism and then also kind of come back to that of what is different between transcending the flesh and these conversations of social media and digital technology. I often come back to Sun Ra and his conception of living an Afrofuturistic life where for him, in order to 
believe that he could be a free black man. He had to completely eradicate the possibilities of Earth itself as a plane of existence. Because for him, saying that, like, I'm a free black man, grammatically, intellectually, just did not make sense via the histories and existences of Earth, which for him, he found that history of the human race to just be very anti-Black. And so for him to then proudly believe that he was a free Black man and that he had the possibility of being a free Black man, he then needed to say that he was from outer space, where that could actually exist for him, that sense of freedom. And he often gets written off as being a bit kooky and a bit out there. But I think, again, that sense of understanding that he was free needed to come from a different temporal and physical plane of existence. And that's what Afrofuturism does. It's not about the future. It's actually about reconceptualizing our engagement with time as a concept and reconceptualizing our plane of existence through time. So what that means is that it's not necessarily just about moving it to a different space per se, but moving it to a different temporal plane of existence. And in that different temporal plane, there's space there where freedom is. And that's his conception, or that's what I often think what Sun Ra was doing with Afrofuturism. That's not necessarily the same terminology about cyberculture, digital technology, online kind of emancipatory work. And to be clear, I don't think this is not a critique against any of that. I just think that how they're conceptualizing that is just very different to what an Afrofuturistic argument is trying to make clear. I think when it comes to cyberculture, we're still very much materially linked to this plane of existence. And I think the difference is also that we don't let go of our body when we go online. It's a popular argument. It's a popular desire to just transcend the flesh, but our body feels things when we're online. So I mentioned this with social media, we feel gratification. We feel that link. We feel tired when we look at the screen all day. Our necks are kind of hurt when we're just hunched over our phones or something. For those who do like video gaming, like, yes, we hear stories about people who can video game for like 25 hours or 30 hours, but like the body breaks down after a certain moment, right? Like you still have to use the restroom, you still have to eat. So it doesn't really transcend the flesh. It gives you different types of opportunities to play with the body or the idea of a body, you know, avatars. It gives you work to do for your imagination, but we're still acutely tied to our bodies, right? Whereas with Sun Ra, or even thinking about Afrofuturism, I think what that concept makes available is that we hold on to our bodies, so we never leave it, but we just try to imaginably create a way of living, a way of speaking that puts that body in a different time period where we believe that we can be free and we can be free from oppression. And then you live your life according to that temporal logic. And I just think that's a different structural aim and what cyberculture makes available. Again, this is not a critique against cyberculture. I just think it's a different method to get at that. When I mention that people often are misinterpreted, I think there's just a, what mainstream culture has done, and what I mean by mainstream culture is just popular outlets, writing, criticism. It's just become really in vogue to say, oh, if it has technology and a Black body, it's Afrofuturistic, right? And I think that's also happening now with the concept of Afro-surrealism, where it's like, if it's kind of weird, it's Afro-surrealist. I just think that we should be a bit careful with some of these terms, because I think they have a very clear 
methodological aim and goal in order to see how they're conceived in the first place. And I don't think that there is anything she was doing that Afrofuturistic. And I think I talk about this also with the music video together again. The popular argument is that that video is Afrofuturistic. And it's, I don't think it is at all. I just, I think it's an interesting take on thinking about planes of existence between the spiritual world and the material world. That doesn't make it Afrofuturistic. But I think again, some of these terms, they make an argument more buzzworthy for people. So they get thrown out there. And I don't think that's her argument. Nor do I think that because she was not talking about Afrofuturism, I don't think that takes away or makes her critiques or engagement with cyberculture any more and or less interesting and or the concepts of the album as well. Like, I don't think it takes away from that. I just think it's a different way of doing work that I don't find intersecting with Afrofuturism at all. Yeah, and I agree with your point that we definitely need to be careful about how we throw around some of these terms that are very much grounded in like theory. For instance, another buzzword that's so popular now is like intersectionality. And I think that people often misuse that term. That term is so misused. Oh, it is so misused. No, but I definitely appreciate what you're saying about just being mindful of how we're actually employing those terms. But we only have time for one more question. I mean, just we've talked about Janet's sort of reconfiguration of sexuality and Black autonomy and thinking about the course of her career. How do you feel that her legacy shapes music today? Oh, in such a huge way. It's so sad that she was blacklisted and kind of blackballed out of the industry for a period of time. And that period of time then made it very popular for a lot of popular artists to perhaps not admit that Janet has influenced them or even just understand that what Janet made available via her career has made their career possible. But I think Janet is the template. I think her, Mariah Carey, Celine Dion and Madonna are really just the titans and Whitney Houston, obviously, yeah, Mm. are the titans for modern conceptions of pop music starting from the 1980s through the present. Obviously, if we go back further than that, there are other titans we can look at. I think they really are the ones who, in their own way, and at a different intersection of different genres of music, really made a space available for us to understand pop music and its mediation with popular artists that we now have access to. So with Janet Jackson, Jimmy Jam said this during her Icon special for MTV in 2001, which I also, I always love reminding people, the first time MTV was like, we're going to do a series on icons the first person that they thought of for the inaugural episode, the inaugural edition was Janet Jackson. Like clearly it was a no brainer. They were like, clearly she's an icon. And Jimmy Jam in that special, he says that Janet Jackson was truly one of the first MTV artists. And what he meant by that was that unlike her brother, who had like a very profound and enduring career with radio and then had to make some adjustments when music videos became a very popular way to sell your single. She was brought into that engagement. So she never really had an extensive relationship with radio. She had to start thinking, okay, I have my single coming out. What does a music video look at? Because if you look at really early Michael Jackson music videos, or even just early Madonna videos, or early Prince videos, right? Or even David Bowie, they're not that good. They're very much like someone standing in front of a green screen and just kind of moving their hips back and forth, right? And she 
wasn't given that luxury because when Control came out in 1986, the music video was an expectation of a single. So she had to think about narrative, about dance breaks, of having really interesting choreography that would make kids want to watch it and repeat it and request it on MTV. And that contribution to music video history is really, really profound because it then made the work of Aaliyah possible and then made the work of FKA Twigs, if you want to even think of the recent present possible about really choreographing work for a music video. Beyond that, though, a relationship I always love mentioning to people is that there would be no Britney Spears if there wasn't Janet Jackson. Britney Spears's career, at least her early career, upwards until like maybe 2005, was modeled after Janet Jackson's career. So she hired Tina Landon, Janet Jackson's choreographer, for her early choreography because she wanted to be like Janet. A lot of her visuals are appropriations of Janet Jackson. So the infamous red latex suit for Oops, I Did It Again, that was based on the red latex suit that Janet Jackson wears in the liner notes for The Velvet Rope. The structure of releasing a mid-tempo song first and then a dance song for your second single and then a ballad for your third single, which is the structure that Janet Jackson made possible or at least popular. Britney Spears admitted that she took that from Janet. Her second album, Oops, I Did It Again, Britney Spears admitted that that was her interpretation of of the second half of Rhythm Nation about growing into one's femininity. Even working with similar remix producers, Britney Spears had modeled that after Janet Jackson's career. If we think about tours, Christina Aguilera, Pink, as well as Beyonce, their tour structure is all influenced and informed by the tour structure that Janet Jackson made popular via the Velvet Rope tour. So there's all of these indirect and direct influences that Janet has made available to artists. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people talk about them as much because of just that 10 plus year period in which she was almost a kind of leper in the industry where it wasn't cool, it wasn't in vogue to cite Janet as a kind of leading influencer of modern day pop music and popular forms of engagement. Well, maybe this is the year that she finally gets her due. I mean, I think as a society, we're doing a lot of retrospective thinking and re-examining the way certain figures were vilified due to racist and misogynist social attitudes at the time and are now being reflected upon in a far more sympathetic light. And especially now with your book, I think that people will start to realize that Janet Jackson is responsible for what we even conceptualize as a pop icon today. I hope so. I mean, I definitely saw... And think the tides are turning and they have been turning for the last five years since she came back in quotation marks, of course, with Unbreakable in 2015 and then her State of the World tour. But of course, her being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and being one of the handful of women inducted when she was inducted in 2019. I think that was a major source of validation for herself, but also for others. I think people are now open to coming back to that conversation. And I hope this book feeds into that engagement. Well, on that though, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show and yeah, agreeing to talk about Janet's legacy. But yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. This is so much fun. 